All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. Hey friends, I have some good news for you. Rethinking Faith will be back in action once again this year at Theology Beer Camp as the God Pods strike back. This event will be October 19th through the 21st in Springfield, Missouri. And this year, the God Pods are looking amazing. We have friends such as the New Evangelicals, You Have Permission, Homebrewed Christianity, The Bible for Normal People, Crackers and Grape Juice, A Tiny Revolution, Secret Art Project, A People's Theology, Rev Covery, and more. And on top of that, we have some fun Jedi Masters hanging out, bringing craft nerdiness such as John Dominic Carlson, Reggie Williams, Adam Clark, Sarah Lane Ritchie, Myron Penner, Thomas J. Orr, Jay McDaniel, Roberto Shea, Espinoza, Pete Enns, Leah Robertson, Tony Jones, and more. It is going to be a blast. For more information, head over to theologybeer.camp. You can use promo code RethinkingGodPod, all one word, capital letters, Rethinking God Pod for $25 off of your registration fee. Come on and hang out this year at Theology Beer Camp. It was a blast last year. I enjoyed getting to see and meet so many of li- uh, you listeners, and I look forward to hanging out this year once again. So, again, theologybeer.camp and use promo code Rethinking God Pod. Hope to see you guys there. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And with me today, I have a new friend. Their name is Benjamin Perry. Ben, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for uh, for hanging out and coming all the way from Maine. That's pretty fun. It's <laughs> the nice thing about podcasts. <laughs> right? It's, my, it's my magical. in the woods can uh, can bring me just about anywhere. Right. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, Maine is so beautiful. I, uh, as, as we were talking prior to jumping on, um, I went there a couple years ago with, we do this thing called family vacation, uh, with, so it's my wife and I, and then, um, another couple, like some of our best friends. And so we call that family vacation and Maine was a recent destination for us on family vacation. Oh, uh, we'd really so enjoyed much. it. Yeah. Yeah, I, actually, spot. I live here with my my best friend in the world uh, and his partner and my brother, and so we have our own little. It, it, it kind of feels like family vacation all the time here. Is what I'm, I guess, what I'm saying. <laughs> I dig it. <laughs> I think I I would uh, do well in an environment like that. My I don't know how Noelle would do. I don't know if she would do as well as me. I she she's a lot more. Um, less outgoing i guess is she's less outgoing <laughs> i know a lot more less outgoing doesn't make sense she is less outgoing than i am and uh enjoys her space but um like for example college i loved it i was like i'm with my friends always <laughs> <laughs> um 
Well, that's but, the, the nice thing about here is like we're all we're all super introverted. We're all writers and uh, you know and just folks like big readers and folks who like to keep them themselves a lot of times. And then we sort of every so often we'll interact with one another. So that keeps it, I think, more manageable, except for my brother, who is the only extrovert in the house. And we always joke that he has like the extrovert pass, that if anybody else wants to join the home, like they have to be an introvert because Eric's already filled the extrovert slot and that's it. (laughs) One (laughs) in the house and then then it's over. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I like it. That sounds fun. I do a a fair amount of reading myself. And so finding a and I'm like super ADHD, if you haven't been able to tell in the first five minutes of knowing me. so being able to find like a nice quiet space to read, but also I like reading. Um, my wife likes to read as well. And there's something about, even though we're not talking or communicating, just being in the same space and reading with somebody is kind of nice. It's like, very, I enjoy that. Yeah. yeah. It's such a beautiful tenderness, like reading next to somebody. I'm also super ADHD. So that does not bode well for the forward direction of this podcast, but it's lo- lovely to be in a, you know, like company. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll make the best out of it. <laughs> well, here, I'll so I'll do my best to keep us on track, but I'm very bad at it. Um, but uh, for starters, for people who might just not be familiar with yourself or your work, can you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit and uh, tell us about the kind of things you find yourself doing? I would love to. So, uh, yeah, I'm Benjamin Perry. I am a minister at Middle Church in New York City which is a UCC uh, church in the East Village. It is a wondrous, fabulous, incredibly queer congregation led by the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis. So it does a lot of anti-racism work, uh, a lot of political engagement, political organizing. Uh, it's deeply involved with the arts. Um, so that's a, an overwhelming blessing. We have members who are on Broadway and things. And so it really, that that colors the community in just gorgeous, rich and vibrant ways. So that's my, my day job. Uh, and then uh, what brought me here is I just published my first book uh, called Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter, uh, which is a nonfiction book all about crying. Uh, it starts with my own journey being someone who didn't cry for more than a decade uh, then digs into some of the research on the physiological and psychological benefits of crying uh, and crying in literature all to say if crying is this uh, deeply beneficial uh, psychologically and physical physiologically healthy act and it's linked to transformation why don't we do it more uh, and so then the middle chunk of the book explores all the social forces that keep us from crying openly. And then the last third of the book uh, invites an exploration of what would a world shaped by more open weeping look like. So that's the book. And then my personal life, I like as I've said before, I live here in Maine. Uh, and my best friend and I are starting a farm. And we just planted 50 apple trees this spring. <laughs> Uh, and we have, yeah, this, this nascent, uh, desire to make cider and do all sorts of weird things, uh, working with the land here in coastal Maine. So that's my professional life, my artistic life and my weird personal life in a, in a nutshell. (laughs) That's awesome. I, my, (laughs) the farm thing, my wife and I just recently joined a CSA, um, for listeners who don't know, uh, community supported agriculture or sustainable agriculture. Um, the So I'm a brewer. If um, I didn't tell you that, I, I make beer for a living. And the other brewer that I work with at, at the, the brewery I'm at um, has a farm and started a CSA. So we joined that recently and that's been really cool. Um, I've enjoyed awesome. being a part of that. Yeah. Um, but so I guess the... We're in a interesting... proud tradition of theologian yes. brewers. That's a, that's a whole thing. <laughs> trying, yeah, trying, doing my best, uh, doing my best. I mean, it's definitely fun. It's been interesting. I was a, um, uh, I used to be a pastor, um, and I did that for about six years, and then I became a brewer, um, and that transition has been interesting. Uh, so I don't know. 
but it, it's been cool. The I've yeah, I've found I, some... I've been a pa- I've been a pastor for seven years now, and I'm now starting a farm. So I don't, I don't know where <laughs> where that's going to lead me, but uh, st- still a pastor and still loving it. But I, I don't know that I'll be a pastor forever. And so I think I, I admire folks who. Uh, you know, have been able to cultivate other kinds of of passions because I think that pastoral work is really intense and, and difficult. And I've always been of the opinion that if you don't have the emotional energy to do it, do it well, that you shouldn't be doing it. Because I've seen a lot of pastors out there who uh, I frankly don't think are uh, doing a great service to their congregations and would probably be better served both for them and their congregations to be doing something else. Yeah, I, amen. I agree. I one of the primary reasons I left uh, vocational ministry was for mental health reasons um, that we don't have to get into. Listeners have heard that shit before. Uh, I'll happily tell you about it another time if you're interested. <laughs> but um, the so just right off the bat, I when I first um, like caught wind that your book was coming out, I got super excited uh, because when I was a pastor, one of the things uh, that my students and other people used to make fun of me, not in a mean way, but used to make fun of me for is that I'm definitely a crier. Um, that hasn't always been the case, but there, I don't know when, but something ended up shifting. And whenever that happened, I couldn't get through a sermon. I couldn't do a wedding ceremony. You know, I couldn't even sometimes just like basic prayers or or introducing somebody just overcome with emotion. And so I was like, oh, cool, a book for somebody like me. <laughs> well, and I think that the, the dirty little secret for those of us who tend to weep frequently is that it feels good. It feels good to be in touch with our emotional lives, to live uh, with emotional integrity, to not suppress the things that we feel coming up inside of ourselves and particularly, uh, you know, in moments like a wedding or a funeral or just giving a sermon or talking passionately about something you, you love, you know, to really be in harmony with that up that, you know, rising emotion is an absolute gift. And so, uh, I think those of us who start crying more, Oftentimes that becomes its own self-reinforcing cycle where it just feels good to be fully embodied. And so we do it more frequently. And so, yeah, I'm also after, you know, that, that decade where I didn't cry at all, after I relearned how to cry again, and I quickly became somebody who cried frequently to the point that when I had written this book and I was telling members of my congregation that I had written a book and they were asking me, oh, what's your book about? And I would tell them, Oh, it's about crying. And they'll be like, oh yeah, that tracks. That makes sense. Like you're always crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like I like it. And even too, like I um even like during just reading your book, um, I felt very like emotionally compelling. Um, and oftentimes found myself uh crying in my backyard as I was cutting the grass and you know, listening to the the audible version or whatever. Um which I love, by the way, I've not been like a, um, I love tangible books. I highlight the shit out of my books and, and, you know, write notes and stuff. And I yeah. found audiobooks recently. And specifically, if there's an author reading their book, it's like a game changer. It's, it's so interesting to, um, be able to hear an author's, um, emotion and personality and all that kind of stuff kind of come through as they're they're reading their own work. And yeah. um, I think you accomplished that nicely uh, in the audiobook for sure. <laughs> it's interesting so, now knowing that you've heard me talk for like eight hours straight. That's the weird thing about recording your own audiobook is that you just like, you know, it's just, you're like, oh man, it sound it, it really it was. I don't want to like make light of it. It was a really joyful pro- thing to to put together. Uh, I really had a great time recording it. Uh, if you want to, if you the listener want to go out and get it, it's available on Audible, and it's it was really really lovely to put together. And I do think that something else comes across when you hear people read their own their own work. And I was able to add the emphasis and things that I you know wrote it with, but I got to do that vocally. The piece that I would not do again is I actually. Uh, edited the entire thing myself too I for reasons beyond myself because I, I do some of that for work and so I was like oh yeah I know how to do audio editing I'll just do it myself I'm not gonna pay somebody 
And so like a fool, <laughs> I proceeded to like edit out all the little breaths and the pauses and the, you know, the, the oh, I, I stumbled over my words and time to take it back to the, all of that I did myself. And so by the time I was done with like day seven of listening to myself for 12 hours, I was ready to jump off a roof. Uh, so I would not, if you're, if you're out there writing and you're thinking about recording your own audiobook, I would say, go for it. That's, it's so good. Definitely record it. Hire an audio engineer. <laughs> Unless you're looking to cry at your own decisions, which exactly. might, might be beneficial depending on uh, how frequently you've cried or <laughs> the last time you yeah, cried. Push my masochism but, to its limits is what I'm saying. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. So I, you definitely, you talk about this in the book, but you mentioned uh, a 10 year period um, of not crying. I try to think for myself, like, okay, when was there a point in my life when I didn't really uh, cry? And the best I could think of was like, like high school and college maybe. Um, mm -hmm. But what, like, what was kind of the thing that brought that to your attention? And then what made you actually want to be like, okay, this not crying thing, probably not great. I'm going to try crying. <laughs> like what kind of brought you to that point? Yeah. So what brought it to my attention was I was in a, in the beginning of seminary, I was in an old Testament class where we were talking about the destruction of the temple and grief and uh, trauma as it relates to the biblical writing and a professor of ours asked us in our small group to share the last time we had wept. And so I was listening as the conversation went around my little uh, discussion group to one by one, my classmates sharing these beautiful memories of when they had cried, when they had wept, how it had changed them, how they still felt that that tenderness now, even, you know, sometimes years after the event. And as I was listening and racking my brains, trying to think of what I would share, I realized that I couldn't remember. I could remember sometimes I had cried when I was a little kid, but I couldn't remember the last time that I had cried because it was so long ago that, you know, God knows when it was. And it was one of those moments that cast in stark relief that there was something inside me that had broken along the way. Um, and the more I started digging into that feeling, the more I realized that at the time when I stopped crying was as I was coming to terms with my own sexuality and negotiating so much internalized homophobia and issues of gender dysphoria and all these things that were making me feel uncomfortable in my own body and was experiencing bullying and uh, not fitting into sort of proper uh, performances of masculinity. And so all of this collectively had created a sense for me that crying wasn't safe. And so I stopped doing it around other people. And the thing about crying, you know, suppressing tears is if you do it enough, it just becomes habitual and instinctive. And so sooner, soon enough, I wasn't crying at all. And so I was sitting with this sense of alienation from my own body in a program where I was training to become a minister. And I realized that if I want wanted to provide pastoral care to other people, if I wanted to help other people move through their emotional lives, talk about some of the most intimate and important things to them that we talk about when we talk about a life of faith, when we're talking about existential hope or despair or loneliness and belonging, these things that are really, really important and really, really heavy. I couldn't ask people to go there if I couldn't even go there myself. And so I decided that I was going to go home that night and I was going to make myself cry. Yeah, the, there's so much there that, hmm, I can't, I, like trying, trying to look back and think if there was ever any kind of like explicit kind of um 
you know, teachings or something like that, that I kind of grew up with around not crying, I think mostly implicit um, things, but yeah, but I I don't know it because I'm, whenever I, I try to look back and think about this stuff and, and figure out when it was that um, I kind of became more uh, comfortable with emotion, I think that it's been something that is, has been a part of my life kind of like the whole time. I think I've always kind of been expressive in that sense. Um, but in the same way as you're talking, not necessarily when it was around certain kind of people. So maybe that's more like the, mm-hmm. the implicit aspect. So I know, uh, for example, I grew up playing sports, not a place to cry, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, most of the time that was something like that you do after sports when you're home by yourself. Um, but like, I don't know, I, places like that I can think of not crying, crying, not being an issue for me was at like a funeral, like when my grandfather passed away or something like that. Um, although in your book, you, you know, share these stories of people you interviewed who are saying that they were, um, explicitly told boys do not cry at the funeral that's what women yeah. do um so well, i don't know it's interesting i i grew up i did not have a lot of shame intentional shame put upon me about crying in the same way that some of the you know folks for example the, in, in the chapter on masculinity and crying uh some of the folks who i interviewed uh remember very explicit uh instruction from family members for example you know, one of the the guys who I record uh, record grew up in an, on a ranch in West Texas, and talks about his grandfather's uh, favorite saying was "Cowboys don't cry." That he would repeat that over and over and over again. It became almost a, like a slogan. And I didn't really have anything like that. My parents were actually really supportive of my emotional life, uh, and I was really blessed to grow up in a family where I never saw crying or emotions more broadly mocked or shunned or treated as something that it was shameful to have. And yet I still grew up in the United States of America in the 1990s. I still, you know, saw other, it's interesting. One of a lot of the memories that I have that are really formative of me remembering, Oh, crying isn't safe actually weren't me crying and somebody making fun of me, they were somebody else crying and getting mocked. And because I was bullied for lots of other reasons, because I just wasn't very socially adept, I was always really attentive to the kinds of things that got people made fun of. And so pretty quickly, I put together, oh, crying is an invitation for ridicule. And so I do remember seeing other kids be mocked for crying and making a mental note that like, oh, that's not something we do around other people. And so even though I had a, a home life that was really supportive of this full emotionality, I started learning to sequester it into those private spaces, into my house. Like I would cry at home, but I definitely wouldn't cry at school. And I think that there's a way that we begin to train our own emotional lives. Uh, and this is something I've heard from other people as well, that you know, you start by saying, okay, I'm only going to cry in this one place, or I'm not going to cry around my kids, or I'm not going to cry, you know, th- you, there are places in your life that you want to, you know, stay strong for, quote, unquote. And what will happen is over time, if you keep habitually, you know, suppressing that upswell of emotion, it just becomes something that you start to do instinctively. And it bleeds over into the other areas of your life. And if we're not careful, we and you're not intentionally trying to make space for those emotions, and particularly as a kid, you know, I, I don't think a lot of kids are particularly intentional about a whole lot of things. <laughs> we sort of, you know, do stuff uh, without all all too much care and intention. Oftentimes, when we're children, um, it can become really easy to lose that part of ourselves entirely. And so, I I talk to a lot of people who remember being open and emotional, expressive kids, and then felt shame for a whole host of different reasons and stopped crying. 
and now are adults and really want to get back to that emotional place for themselves and they have a really hard time doing it. And so now they have all of this shame in adulthood about crying too. So you have this, this shame that you that was put upon you as a kid because you were crying too much or you were too expressive and then you stopped crying and now you're an adult and now you have this other shame that you feel because you're not expressive enough or you're not emotionally available for the people in your life in the way that you want to be. And there's so many people who are just strung between this childhood shame and this adulthood shame, and none of that is theirs. All of it is something that has been placed on them that is perverting a beautiful, wondrous, natural practice. Uh, and it's heartbreaking. And so I think the more that we can be intentional about reclaiming that for ourselves and modeling it, we can create the kind of world where it gives other people the opportunity to step into that vulnerable and tender place too. Yeah. I <laughs> Absolutely. I think um, in that sense, you know, like maybe like a public display of uh, tears or something like that can almost become a voice of uh, um, resistance or like kind of like this kind of like prophetic thing um, speaking into culture in the sense that, um, you know, I think of, for example, not to I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because I was often very embarrassed when I would like cry trying to preach a sermon or something. But the amount of people uh, who would thank me after those experiences and be like, um, thank you for showing my teenager that it's okay to express emotion. Um, that's not just anger, right? Like in your, in your book, you talk about like anger is kind of the emotion that um, often like is associated with like a masculinity that we can be angry and pissed and curse and swear, but don't cry. Yeah, because it's um, not an it's not an emotion. Anger is right. You know, a righteous <laughs> reaction. You know, it somehow yes, gets it's somehow rational. Third, <laughs> it's that secret third thing, you know, we have objectivity <laughs> and we have emotion, but then there's anger, and anger is like this other thing that that, that that's you know, it maybe it's not as good as being perfectly objective and reasonable all the time, but it's not like being emotional. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's funny too, because when, you know, you're also talking about kind of like this is the suppression of emotion. Um, that's something that even though um, I'm often drawn or um, driven kind of to tears, uh, negative emotions or what, you know, my therapist says there's no negative emotions, but we call negative emotions. <laughs> um, I tend to run from them and mm -hmm. actually suppress them. And so I've noticed that a lot of the times when I would cry um, in, in front of people were out of um, joy or even, um, I don't have good words for this, like preaching and being a part of something that like feels bigger than yourself. And it's just like those kind of transcendent moments are Ocean deeply moving. Feeling. Yeah, like that. Yeah, that's I'm going to steal that phrase. Um <laughs> were were easy for me but for example um full tilt brewing which is the shirt i'm wearing it says tilts it doesn't say tits which a lot of people think that's what it says but um they i was working for them for about a year and a half brewing and absolutely loved it a place of deep healing after i kind of came out of like some of the church stuff i was dealing with and they went bankrupt and when they came in and announced that um to myself and the other brewer um, I was not, I didn't have any kind of emotional reaction. Um, I felt it in my gut, but like my immediate sense was like, I can't show emotion in this, you know, current situation. So what we did was we all drank a bunch and then I went home and wept. Like I haven't wept in years, um, with, you know, to my wife and yeah. then uh, and then I proceeded to drink more and drunk called my buddy Trip Fuller and at obscene hours and left a drunk voicemail on his phone in which the next morning <laughs> he called me back and I was embarrassed and I apologized uh, to him for doing so. And he said, no, uh, Josh, I appreciate that I am the kind of person that you feel like you can call drunk crying <laughs> and he said and hopefully you know not hopefully but maybe one day i might return the favors kind of how he said it and so that kind of like suppression mm -hmm. 
even in the sense where it's like, okay, these kind of tears are appropriate. These kind of aren't. Does that make sense? I was trying to like. It does. If you don't this. mind me doing a little armchair psychology of, of you and, and please don't, you know, take this any kind of way. Um, but I, it's just a pattern that I've seen in men that I've spoken with. There's a way in which crying out of joy, crying from oceanic feeling, crying uh, from pride, from accomplishment, those kinds of tears still preserve power. It's also why a lot of men will feel more comfortable crying on behalf of their wife or their children. Something bad happens to a child that you know, their child is bullied at school, they might cry. Or if you know, their wife is going through something, they might cry. Because that's still a power relationship that preserves that patriarchal notion of, uh, of men as to a particular kind of degree invulnerable. And the kind of crying that you're talking about that's sort of characterizing as a negative emotion is an admission of vulnerability. In the case of you know, your, your brewery, um, you know, declaring bankruptcy, that's an admission that that this bad thing that has happened has hurt a part of you. And that is a violation of patriarchy in a different kind of way than certainly, you know, crying from joy, crying like is a is a violation of sort of the strictest patriarchal norms of how a man is how a man ought to behave. But I, I think that it is less of a violation of patriarchal norms than the kind of vulnerability that admitting we've been hurt by something asks of us. And so it's easier, for example, to cry to a, a close friend because that's somebody who we have a pre-existing relationship with and we're not as, as wrapped up in that sort of performance of patriarchy than if you know, you're around a bunch of people you don't know as well, even if they're coworkers or particularly if you're around strangers or if you're in a con leading a congregation and you're expected to lead in a particular kind of way, that kind of vulnerability asks for a different for a different kind of and a deeper violation of patriarchal paradigms than crying in ways that still preserve some uh, you know form of power do. And if you extend the metaphor, there are ways in which that actually becomes really like uh, predatory in, in really gross kinds of ways. And I'm definitely not saying that, that this relates to you at all now. Um, but like, for example, in my book, I talk about Brett Kavanaugh uh, during the Christine Blasey Ford uh, hearings, crying on behalf of his wife and his children that they should be subjected to this, you know, th this incredibly corroborated, uh, you know, rape accusation. Uh, that all of a sudden he's crying on their behalf because it again re-enshrines him in power. And he even at one point cries on behalf of like the like another woman who was, you know, uh, abused by him and his classmates. And again, it's this way of re-inscribing patriarchal paradigms, an almost aggressive form of crying in that hearing. Um, and so, it, I don't know, crying is really interesting to me because it intersects in so many different ways with all of these other systems of power that uh, you know shape our lives, and I think if we're attentive to some of the differences in them, we can see how different kinds of weeping uh, illuminate the ways that other kinds of power are active in our life. Yeah, that that's super interesting. Um, I think of you know, kind of when you're talking about this, um, you know, taking tears and kind of using them um, maybe to like trick people or, or in a way that's maybe a little bit more deceitful or, or aggressive. Um, the first church that I ever worked in, uh, the, the staff culture there definitely was very like stereotypical, hyper-masculinity kind of stuff, like very much taught, like this is men's place, this is women's place. Uh, we're not even going to address lgbtq people because whatever you know that kind of place um i did not last there very long <laughs> and uh the um head pastor though depending on the day he wouldn't do it often but um i would have to watch him preach three sermons and he would shed the same like tears at the same exact point in these sermons that were scripted like 
how the sermons worked there where you literally had to preach off a written script that mm-hmm. um you were handed and yeah. so like it always came around like oh the church needs money or something like that right and so that kind of the weaponization um of tears is interesting too because again as you're talking that that plays into like that the power aspect mm-hmm. um yeah, tears yeah. can be a way to reify power, not just to, you know, I think in really beautiful ways, tears can disrupt power. I think that's why they're powerful. I think it's one of the ways, one of the reasons why I was so interested in writing this book, because I think tears invite us to disrupt unjust forms of power in ways that are prophetic in the truest sense of the word. And simultaneously, other kinds of crying can be deployed precisely to more deeply entrench those very same systems. And so I I think it's why tears are so fraught as a cultural topic of conversation, why people are oftentimes distrustful of crying, because it has this inherent ambiguity in the way that it's used both for really beautiful things and also for really awful things. Um, but, you know, looping it into, I was really excited, you know, to come on a, a faith podcast. I've been doing all sorts of different conversations about the book. And so I do a lot of, you know, uh, in more secular context, just talking about crying in general. But I also think there's a really beautiful faith conversation to be had. And it's it's fascinating to me, the number of churches that treat crying as if it were some sort of, uh, you know, taboo thing. Because if we read the Bible, it is such an integral part of what a life of faith looks like. Uh, you know, and the kinds of crying that are described in the Bible, the rending of garments, the, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth, like these, these are really demonstrative forms of crying. The, you know, instances of crying, like Mary Magdalene crying at Jesus's tomb before the resurrection, or Jesus crying before Lazarus is raised, these crying incidents are like the only way you can understand those stories is to understand that the ancient audience who was writing them and reading them was seeing this weeping as a testament to the profundity of those people's faith. And I think that, you know, when it comes to prophetic, the, the, the prophetic dimension of tears in the true biblical sense of prophecy, not of telling the future, but of disrupting violence, of saying a true thing, of calling the world towards a different kind of being that kind of weeping has such a huge footprint in the Bible and such a powerful claim on our own hearts that to treat weeping as if it were a four-letter word is such a violation of the beauty with which God has knit us. Yeah, I I love that. It, I, I really enjoyed the it kind of in the book you trace um, these different like biblical narratives and then also stories that, you know, are extra biblical um, where tears are connected to like transformation and like key moments um, in stories and in, and in people's lives. Um, Yeah. And the different, I don't know that I I think too, like weeping as you're, as you're talking about it from this like prophetic sense uh, can serve as a, almost as like a mirror because it's almost like this demand to recognize my humanity. Yeah. And when and it, it, from like a sense when somebody is standing in front of you and they are are weeping uncontrollably because of something that uh maybe you did or somebody else did or you know whatever um and you can't be moved by that then that's saying something about the person who's not being moved. It's it's that mirror of like, look at my humanity and look at what you're not, what you're not doing here. <laughs> and yeah. so that kind of like prophetic uh, language there, I, I find really interesting as well. Um, yeah, the very yeah. Often that's what the prophets are doing in the Bible is they are not necessarily prophesying to the the king that they are speaking out against it's actually a message to the broader community who watches that kind of abuse of power shown in stark contrast to this love of god which is vulnerable which is willing to bear itself nakedly out of a desire for just change and when you see that kind of, you know, King Herod's willingness to murder children contrasted against the vulnerability of, you know, the God incarnated in the manger, 
the inhumanity of King Herod is rendered ever more stark. And I think that that's one of the functions that, you know, prophetic tears uh, serve as well is this, this sense that by relinquishing power and by not, you know, claiming the kind of absolute authority that the kinds of, you know, despotic kings in the Bible embody, we actually invite a much deeper and more radical collective transformation. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, you brought up transformation before, because I, I think we all know in some really core and essential way that that crying is integrally linked to transformation. That's certainly true when we look at it, how it functions in literature and how authors use tears and the ways that, you know, crying manifests in scripture and other places. But it's also true just in the places that we often cry. Like when you talk to people about where they often cry, you'll frequently hear things like stairwells or planes or, you know, driving home. Dolly Parton has this fascinating story about how she wrote the song Light of a Clear Blue Morning. And it was, she had just left the Porter Wagoner show and Porter Wagoner had been like, you're, you're, you're finished, you're done. You're, you're not gonna be anything. And she was weeping in the car ride home. And that was in that car ride home weeping was when she wrote this, this song that ended up being, you know, her, one of her largest hits. Um, but oftentimes we cry in these liminal spaces because crying is not necessarily the final punctuation mark. It is this, this midpoint of whatever we are going through that physically it is moving through our bodies and pouring down our cheeks. We like this emotion that we are experiencing is coursing through us and we are going from somewhere that we used to be headed towards somewhere we are going. Uh, and that kind of transformation that, that weeping embodies is so at the core of, you know, what it means to be a resurrection people. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, like crying becomes like this eschatological exercise. Like you, the, the kind of the final chapter in your book um, is called like weeping for the world we desire. And so crying can then also become attached to uh, like hope. It can be a, a hopeful <laughs> um, exercise and experience because it it can signify um, that we know things are not as they should be and that they could be better. And so through tears, it's like, yeah, that I don't know that yeah, the eschatological aspect to, to another yeah. person. And we know, you know, from all the psychological research on crying that actually when people see other people crying far against, you know, our, our own fears or suspicions that they would judge us or they would be mean to us, by and large, people, when they see other people crying, feel tender, they feel caring, they feel closer to that person. So crying, it actually becomes a seed that knits us closer to our neighbors. And in that relationship where all of a sudden we're having this tender exchange that wasn't there before, we get that eschatological foretaste of the world we deserve. Yeah, I love the the connection and the the relational language too. The those like kind of studies that you share uh, in your book were super fascinating. Where they had like the different pictures and like put a tear on on some of the faces and not on the others, and how people responded to those and how it's like kind of pretty uh, similar results across you know across the world. Um, it was really interesting, and I just the. I mean, I'm like a deeply relational person. It's the thing that I like hit on the most. Um, I mean, even from a theological perspective, I'm like an open and relational process thinker kind of person. And so tears too, in regard to that, the the kind of um, connection, like I very much believe that everything is, is interconnected, that um, we don't know ourselves, like kind of, you know, we're all a part of the whole and the whole, we can't know it fully without knowing the individuals who are a part of it. Um, in the same way that like, we can't know the individual without understanding their connection to the whole. Um, and so when, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, it's fascinating that you bring up process thought um, because that's one of the, the pieces that I think oftentimes goes unspoken in analyzing that, that famous verse of, of Jesus wept. That we'll talk about it through the lens of Jesus's humanity, but we actually less frequently talk about the implications for Jesus's divinity. What does it mean for God to cry? Because crying, again, implies change. We don't actually earnestly cry 
if we are not in a process of transformation, if we are not in a process of change, if we are in a place where we are remaining the same, we are not going to be brought to tears. And so when Jesus cries, when God cries, it is saying something very important about God, which is that God is not static. God is moved by suffering in the world. God is in a process of becoming in the same way that we are in a process of becoming. Amen. Boom. Welcome to the hashtag process party. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so good. And I, I, I love because too, it's just, I'm, now you're going to get me on a tangent. I don't understand why people, I kind of understand, but it's, it's, it's frustrating to me when we have this kind of image of God who is unchanging, not moved by suffering, like can't, you know, um, relate in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and then a lot of the people who hold the, kind of that perspective are also people who say like, no, the Bible is literally true. But then when you get to these different aspects in the scripture where it's like, well, God changed God's mind and Jesus wept and blah, 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 blah. They're like, oh, well, that that part's just not literal. That part's not real. Like it, it drives me crazy. But the, this image of a God who is deeply relational um, and meets us in each present moment of becoming um, and not only um, can empathize with our pain and suffering, but actually feels like in a very real way and experiences um, the pain of not only myself, but of you and of all of creation. Like that is a more beautiful, a more powerful uh, God to me. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I'm with you. I God love the, the Jesus wit. The, yes. Amen. <laughs> Absolutely. Ah, uh, man. Yes. I'm so, that's awesome. I'm so glad process got brought into this because it's a lot of fun yeah. <laughs> and it makes sense for the, the relational aspect. Um, and to like in, in regard to that relational aspect as well, I think of, um, kind of the way that I have developed and changed in my thinking about, uh, talking about something like sin is I think sin arises out of, um, the illusion of separateness. And so when we believe that we're separate from each other, from ourselves, from creation and from uh, the divine, I think that's where then sin comes from because we're acting in ways that are against that, that kind of run against the grain of how the universe functions. Yeah. And so tears um, kind of help break down that illusion of separateness because the, the tears as you were, you were talking about, um, invites other people into our pain, our vulnerability, our suffering um, in a way that just kind of recognizes like, oh yeah, we're, we're all in this together. They dissolve the lie that we could ever be separate. Uh, one of my favorite interviews that I did for the book was with uh, uh, Caitlin Curtis, uh, the Potawatomi uh, author and fabulous human, all around human being. Uh, she was talking to me about an experience she had at a retreat where she put her hands on the ground and entered into a relational place with the earth and was overwhelmed by the magnitude of suffering to the point where she started crying. I think particularly when we're talking about a relationship like our relationship with the earth, where so often we are fed this lie that the earth is a resource, that it is not actually breathing and sentient in the same kind of way that we are sentient. Uh, this separateness, to have that kind of experience where you are crying because you are feeling the pain of something that is suffering, someone who is suffering it starts to unravel the kinds of sin that have become so deeply entrenched in the way that we relate to the natural world. And I, I think that that is very true in the ways that we relate to one another too, that if we cry because we have hurt somebody, it invites a different kind of atonement, a different kind of transformation that is, that is relational. I think that's one of the ways that so oftentimes our... <laughs> apologies and particularly the kinds of public apologies that happen in social media and other places fall so so hauntingly shallow is because they're, they're not actually in relationship at all they are 
offered as a means to avoid entering relationship. And I think crying is part of that process that makes us recognize that in all of these enmeshed networks where so often we are both someone who harms and someone who has been harmed, that tears start to build the kind of relationship where we can talk about that hurt in a way that leads us beyond it. Yeah, amen. <laughs> we all really do need to cry more. Uh, yeah, the the relational aspect um, is just so key to me. I, and I mean, I think even just experientially in my life, the kind of ways that I have been um, changed and shifted and molded just by being willing to enter into relationship with people who... Um, think differently than me or or believe differently than me or um prefer different sexual kind of partners than I do like whatever um that relationality really um it does something it it changes things because you know um I've talked about this on the podcast before but um so both of my brothers um are identify within the LGBTQ community um, my brother Jordan identifies as gay and, and Justin is uh, pansexual. And I remember um, prior to, you know, them ever uh, kind of like coming out or anything like that, the kind of LGBTQ question was just a, it was just a theory, just an idea in my mind, right? That it was just like easy to kind of like think about, be like, oh, well, like I, this uh, this argument, that argument, da 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 da. But then, once something becomes uh, relational, it kind of shifts how you you change and interact with things, um, where it's no longer this abstract kind of concept that's out there, but rather it's this like like embodied experience. And so, I think the the relationality and being willing to to kind of um, open yourself up and step into those those places really makes a difference. Um, and, and I mean, I even think too, in, in just like with complete transparency, um, I, so like, I've very much been open and affirming since, you know, a very long time. That was never really a, a thing I, um, like fought against or something like that. Right. Uh, as a pastor, but something that I didn't, um, fully understand, was the trans community. And it wasn't until I intentionally started making friends and having vulnerable conversations and asking questions and being met with grace and um, honesty and, and openness that then again, it's this, the relational aspect of things, um, shift and just change everything because then again it's no longer abstract and then you get to a place at least for me where it's like okay i don't have to fucking understand everything in the world uh, but these people are my friends and um i love them and that's good enough for me <laughs> what, does that make what a does, gift to be different what a gift yeah fuck be. yeah we have this I, this world that fetishizes consistency as if it were some marker of moral superiority when I, if there are parts of me that are wrong, like God bless me with inconsistency, uh, you know, and, and I think that I was on a podcast with Mandy Capehart a couple of days ago, and she was talking about, uh, you know, people being in relationship with a, with a parent who uh, harmed harm them emotionally or you know like who, who was wasn't able to offer the kind of tenderness that they they wish they uh you know mar wish to find that relationship and you know her work as a therapist helping those people understand that it it's actually not really about you it's about them you know that's that's their inability to enter into a vulnerable place with anybody it's not actually like that you did something wrong it's just like they can't go there with anyone and one of the things i was saying is that, that like that also means that they can't go there with themselves i think that's one of the the great tragedies of people who fetishize never changing 
is they're actually unable and unwilling to offer any kind of tenderness to themselves because the only way that you can remain in that rigidly inflexible place is through a punishing regime of making sure that you never deviate from who you already are. And that's not any way to live. Yeah, it um it kind of reminds me too of the you had mentioned kind of at the start of our our conversation um this like use the the language of like internalized homophobia um around not crying and i that's really striking to me because i think um it, i mean even just like looking back like in middle school if somebody like was crying people would be like oh you're gay like that's what makes you gay is crying um <laughs> but what's what's interesting that to what's interesting about that to me is it it again it, it as we've kind of talked about it falls into these like like socially constructed um like confines of what it means to be like a man or a woman these these kind of binaries and then to the point where denying one's own like true emotions becomes like oh i can't cry like does that does that mean like i'm i'm gay or something like that and that like scares people and so i think I mean, you have a whole a whole chapter in 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 your book about the queer art of crying, but I think one thing um, that kind of like uh, queer theory or the, or the LGBTQ community um, offers in the kind of this conversation is that willingness to just fucking be yourself and not put up with the kind of binaries and then live out of this place of freedom, um, which then you that like can help you become comfortable within your own sexuality, whether that whatever that is for you and i think um, partly partly why i see so many more queer folks who are comfortable with crying is because we're com more comfortable with our own bodies with, within our own bodies because i went through that period where i heard kids call other kids gay for crying at a time when i knew that i was queer and i was not ready to come to terms with that for myself and so i started to hate parts of myself and feel shame about parts of who i was and it took years to unravel that shame. It took years to unravel that hurt. And I finally got to a point where I was able to love all of who I was. And when I got to that place, the crying was superfluous. <laughs> like all of that emotional work, all of that emotional change that led me to really love who I was, even and particularly all of the parts that I had hated for so long. There is a weeping in that. And so when I talk to other queer people who have gone through similar experiences and have come out the other side and have come out and told the world, of course, it's going to be easier to cry because that kind of emotional integrity that crying requires is also a marker of so much of what we have been through. Yeah, and there's such a such a beautiful invitation in that too i think because you know even um just the kind of <laughs> and i know i don't have to tell you this but just like the kind of anger and spite and vitriol that gets kind of thrown out in you know lashing against um people like my brothers um or members of the lgbtq community um i would venture to guess without trying to psychoanalyze a bunch of people <laughs> that a lot of that comes just from fear and from people not being comfortable with their own bodies, not being comfortable with their own emotions. Um, and so I think <laughs> that's such a beautiful gift that the queer community is offering to the world if people have eyes to see it, um, is that regardless of this anger and, and vitriol and hatred that gets thrown, um, the ability to say, well, like, this is who I am and I'm, I'm, comfortable in my body and I love myself and I'm going to express that um is again it's that mirror you know and it's a reason why it's beautiful I won't generally meet homophobic rhetoric with anger I mean it makes me angry don't don't get me wrong uh and there are definitely times where my best intentions uh 
fall by the wayside and and that that real reaction just uh, pops out but more often when i'm able i don't for example when people want to debate oh this same seven you know scripture verses that they trot out to to hurt me and have been trotting out for the last hundred years as if it were some sort of biblical uh you know magic trick and not just a horrifically impoverished <laughs> exegetical reading um i don't i don't engage i don't i'm not going to sit here and debate these seven verses i'm not going to talk about I, I can do it i can go into like the the greek and i can talk about the history of you know sexuality and the kinds of sexuality that paul was actually conduct you know like i can i can do the whole thing i can do that song and dance and i refuse to i'm done having that conversation it bores me i'm bored by it and Honestly, that person's not going to change because I explain all this biblical stuff to them. They can Google it if they want. There's lots of other people who've written about it. What I can do and what I think invites a different kind of relationship is I just talk about myself. I talk about the things I love about myself, the things I love about my sexuality. I talk about the ways that I see love writ gorgeously across the, the queer relationships that I have, all my friends, the ways that I see people beautifully coming into themselves. And I think that the more that we can use those kinds of storytelling to bring out the richness and the fullness of people's humanity, that kind of stark anger feels so brittle, I think even in the mouths of people who hold it. And I think that there is, there is no better sense for those folks at the futility and impotence of that kind of hate than for it to be exposed by a different kind of love. Oh, sorry, my screen went black. I have to make a note to edit that out. Dang it, I blew the moment. <sighs> yeah, I... I don't know. I'm on board. I'm often... <laughs> I'm I'm just kind of at a... a, a loss for words. Um, because often... <laughs> As I've said on this podcast many times, I I tend to live into my head, um, and less in like my heart and my body. And these kind of conversations um, are just so moving that it's hard just to exist it in, in, in it as like an intellectual exercise or something like that. Um, and so I don't know. I, I appreciate the the um, the openness and the and the vulnerability um, that you have shared. Um, not just in this this conversation, but um, also in your book. Uh, like I said, I really enjoyed it. Um, I still think my neighbors probably think I'm weird for cutting the grass and you know crying as I do so. Um. <laughs> just tell them that you were you know but, mourning each individual blade of grass. They'll think you much less weird. Like, oh, oh yes, I read a thing the other day so that bad. was like the smell of fresh cut grass is like a distress signal, like warning the other plants. And I was like, don't fucking tell me that, please. <laughs> uh man but no i all right i kind of am going to put you in the spot and feel free to say no and i'll just edit this part off but i think uh a really cool way to maybe end our conversation um if you're up for it would be since you are uh have pastoral experience um on the spot, could you give a benediction to close our conversation, um, inviting people into the uh, beautiful, transforming power of embra embracing our emotions and our tears? I'd be glad to. Drop it like it's hot. <laughs> fact, I'll, I'll offer two. I, I, right. I wrote one in my book. And so if people want a little taste of, of my, my book as it is, here's the benediction. Uh, that I wrote for my book, and then I'll break into a, an impromptu benediction. Um, this is my sneaky way of stalling for time. No, um, <laughs> this is this is a blessing for crying that I wrote in my book. If you've lost your tears, may you find them again. Know that you are never beyond redemption, and worthy of full emotional life. May crying nourish you, a balm for the wounds you still carry and a solve on fresh hurt. As droplets fall, may they water new growth, 
and may our collective weeping shape a world better than the one we inherited. May we attune ourselves to grief and hold the places we are broken, repairers of the breach. May cries long silenced be heard in full, yeast for our communal rising. Hold each other fiercely, not to build a future where every eye is dry, but one where we weep copiously from the joy and tenderness of living. And then here is the benediction that I will offer you, the listener. Be curious about your tears. Dare to believe that your emotions are telling you something fundamental about who you are and whose you are and who you are called to be. As your tears fall, may God wrap you in gentleness and touch any of the places you carry shame. No, please, no, please, no, that that shame is not yours. You do not need to carry it. If you have been served by numbness, ask if that numbness is still serving you now. Take the risk to love, to love yourself so deeply. You invite the kind of change that mirrors a God who is becoming. Amen. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, listeners, um, man, I, <laughs> plugging stuff at the end feels awkward now, but, uh, <laughs> I want to make sure people. You can buy Cry Baby. Why? Yeah. <laughs> books are sold. And you can follow me at FaithfullyBP on Twitter and Instagram and threads now, I guess. I've been posting there occasionally. Um, but that, that's where you can find me or you can come listen to my sermons at Middle Church or you can just read the book and uh, give it to somebody who needs a good cry. Hmm. All right. Well, I'll be sure to, to link those things in the show notes as well. Um, and listeners, as always, Thanks for hanging out today and uh, go in peace, guys. Mm-hmm.